How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. A professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, he overlapped with B.B. Warfield, the, the last of the great Princeton theologians or conservative theologians anyway. And he knew, and when Warfield died, Machen's comment was something to the effect that when Warfield died, Princeton died with him. Princeton Seminary was reorganized in 1929, what was essentially an an administrative reorganization of the board, had theological implications, and Machen left the seminary at that point and founded the institution where I now work, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. That was in 1929, but he did not leave the, the Northern Presbyterian Church, the church of which he was a minister at that point. Uh, but very, very concerned about uh, developments uh, of liberalism within the denomination. In 1933, he did what in many ways is a very un-Presbyterian thing. He founded an independent board of missions, which to actually split the conservative movement within the Northern Presbyterian Church, precisely because it was something of a rebellious act. And it led to the prosecution of Machen within his own denomination and his departure from the Northern Presbyterian Church in 1936 to found uh, what was then called the Presbyterian Church of America, but they were sued over the name and uh, became known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, of which I am a minister today. Though Machen himself did not live really to see uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for very long. He, uh, he died on January the 1st, 1937, while preaching in the Dakotas. A few years ago, I was at a, a church, speaking at a church camp, and I met uh, a lady there who was, by that point, I think, well into her 80s. And she remembered hearing Machen preach in Christmas week, 1936, in the Dakotas. And all she could remember was he had a very, very heavy cold. Well, that was the cold that turned into the pneumonia that uh, carried him off. Leaves us a variety of of works. Um, His work on the virgin birth remains a standard text. Uh, He did an introduction uh, to the New Testament. But the book I want to focus on this morning is the one, I think, for which he's most famous, and that is Christianity and Liberalism. In the midst of the struggles in the Presbyterian Church in the 1920s, Machen wrote this work as a way of trying to crystallize what the central issues were. What are the central issues that divide? And Machen would put it as dramatically as this. What are the central issues that divide Christians from liberals? I should qualify that slightly. When Machen is using liberal here, he's thinking theological. You You could be a political conservative and a theological liberal. Machen, when he uses liberalism, is not thinking Fox News term liberal. He is thinking theological liberal, and he sees a basic opposition, as we will see, between Christianity and liberalism. For him, they are not two versions of one religion. 
They are different religions. And that is an extremely important point to grasp from his book. The book itself consists of an introductory chapter laying out why he's writing the book and six chapters dealing with doctrine, God and man, the Bible, Christ, salvation, and the church. And I just want to offer a, a brief comment on that at this point. Remember that belief in the authority of Scripture is not enough and never has been in church history. There is a Dutch saying, every heretic has his text. You point me to a decent heretic in church history, and I will point you to somebody who says they believe in the authority of the Bible. It is not simply believing the Bible is authoritative that makes you a Christian. It is what you believe the Bible teaches that constitutes you as a Christian. And what I like about Machen's book is he doesn't just focus on what we would call inerrancy. He realizes that Christianity is a complex of doctrines, all of which need to be defended if the faith is to make coherent sense. It's one of the reasons, I think, that he is a confessional Presbyterian. You can be saved believing very, very little, but the church tasked with the job of passing on the faith from generation to generation needs a sophisticated statement of faith. For Machen, I think Christianity is, certainly as the church holds it confessionally, a little bit like a mousetrap. You know, mousetraps, if you've ever lived in a house which has a mouse problem, you'll be familiar with the traditional mousetrap. And it's a miracle of engineering, isn't it? It's a beautifully efficient, efficient thing. But if you take away any part from it, it doesn't work anymore. There is, if you like, we might say, a certain ineradicable complexity, even to a simple thing like a mousetrap. And Machen knew that the faith had to be defended as a whole. And that's important because often we contend as Christians to focus on the presenting issue in our day and generation to the neglect of everything else. What Machen presents in Christianity and liberalism, I think, is a much more holistic approach to Christianity. It's not enough to believe the Bible is authoritative. You have to have views about the importance of doctrine. You have to have views about God. You have to have views about man. You have to understand something of Christ. You have to understand salvation. You have to understand the church in order to have a fully rounded, fully orbed, stable Christian faith. So that's the first point I want to make about Christianity and liberalism. It's not just another defense of the authority of the Bible. It's a defense of historic Christianity, and there is a difference. Second thing I want, point I want to make about the book is this. Its key themes, its key themes can perhaps be summarized this way. Machen sees there are two great presuppositions of the Christian faith that are being challenged in his day. The reality of the living God and the fact of sin. And Machen saw the liberalism of his day as challenging these in a particular way. Just a short, very short history lesson, and somewhat simplistic, but like most simplistic history lessons, it contains certain truth. Christianity had been rendered somewhat implausible in its traditional form at the Enlightenment. 
Early 19th century, there were those who simply found the idea of revelation as traditionally understood and of salvation as traditionally understood implausible. And so in order to to make Christianity credible to its present generation, a very clever German theologian called Friedrich Schliermacher wrote a series of speeches on religion to its cultured despisers. That was the title of the work. And in many ways, it embodied what was the heart of Schleiermacher's approach to Christianity. And Schleiermacher's approach to Christianity was this. He turned doctrinal statements into statements about human psychology. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, when you and I talk about the resurrection, hopefully, hopefully we're all thinking about something that happened in history. Schleiermacher, however, sort of turned that on its head and said, that's not the important thing. Whether the resurrection happened or not is not the important thing. It's the human psychology that lies behind that expression. Later, Schleiermacherians would say the resurrection really refers to the experience of the living Christ within the church community. You think about what's being done there. Doctrine is being turned into, we might say, sentiment. We sound as if we're talking about events that have happened in the past and their significance, but what we're really talking about is human experience today. And this became a very, very powerful way of approaching Christianity in the 19th century. Notice, it doesn't necessarily deny the historical truths of the Christian faith. It simply says that their significance does not lie in their historical veracity. It lies in the impact they have upon Christians and the Christian community. That's a very important point because that lies behind a lot of Machen's thinking. Machen's basic point really, we could summarize as this, is because God is a living God, because God is a great and a powerful God, and because human beings have sinned against Him, our problem is ultimately not a psychological one. Doctrine is not there to bring about psychological well-being. Doctrine is there to teach us about what God has done for us. And for this reason, Machen sees liberalism and Christianity as being two different religions, as I've already mentioned, not two types of the one religion. And it comes out very strikingly in a comment that he makes on Roman Catholicism. And this has always intrigued me. It's on page 43 of the Erdman's edition. He's been talking about the the difference between Calvinists and Arminians, between those who believe in God's sovereign election and those who allow a significant degree of the role of free will in our salvation. And he moves from that then to thinking about Roman Catholicism, and he says this, far more serious than the division between Calvinists and Arminians is the division between the Church of Rome and evangelical Protestantism in all its forms. Yet how great is the common heritage which unites the Roman Catholic Church with its maintenance of the authority of Holy Scripture and with its acceptance of the great early creeds to devout Protestants today. We would not indeed obscure the difference which divides us from Rome. The gulf is indeed profound. But profound as it is, it seems almost trifling compared to the abyss which stands between us and many ministers of our own church. 
The church of Rome, and this is the sort of the sting, the church of, the Ro- of Rome may represent a perversion of the Christian religion, but naturalistic liberalism is not Christianity at all. It's hard to imagine how he could have laid that issue out more decisively. Yes, he says, we have serious divisions, serious differences with Roman Catholics, but ultimately that's a perverted form of Christianity. Liberalism, the reduction of Christianity to psychology for Machen, that's not even Christianity at all. It's a completely different religion, and you can feel for him there as he talks about ministers of our own church. He's talking about men in the Northern Presbyterian Church at that point, men in his own denomination from whom he feels further away than priests in the Roman Catholic Church. And a lot of this then comes down for Machen seeing the difference between liberalism and Christianity as a difference in a view of the status and importance of the supernatural. Machen sees traditional Protestantism, he sees Roman Catholicism as supernatural, believing in the supernatural. He sees liberalism as denying that. And the two fundaments, the two foundations for Machen on this point are the the living God, the sense of the living God, and the incarnation. And he goes on in the book to talk about the question of miracles. Many liberals, of course, say, well, the miracles didn't happen. We should either give them a naturalistic explanation or we should see their significance not as lying in the fact they're miraculous, but in what they're telling us about the human condition and about God's love for us. Machen says this, the question concerning all miracles, he says, is simply the question of the acceptance or rejection of the Savior that the New Testament presents. Reject the miracles, and you have in Jesus the fairest flower of humanity who made such an impression upon his followers that after his death they could not believe that he had perished, but experienced hallucinations in which they thought they saw him risen from the dead. Accept the miracles, and you have a Savior who came voluntarily into this world for our salvation, suffered for our sins upon the cross, rose again from the dead by the power of God, and ever lives to make intercession for us. The difference between these two views, and again he strikes this note again, is the difference between two totally diverse religions. The miraculous. For Machen, it's not a case of you cannot say that the miracles have significance for what they teach us about God. They're not like Aesop's fables, if you like. The very fact that they happened in history is what makes them significant because they point for Machen to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus looks out and Mark you know, uses that phrase. He says he looks out at the people and he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he sat down and he fed them using the loaves and the fishes. And of course, if you tie that back to Ezekiel 34, I think what we see there, knowing that this miracle has taken place, the significant thing about that is Jesus is demonstrating to them that he is the great king shepherd who is to come. When God says in Ezekiel 34, I, I will be the shepherd of my people, we see that fulfilled. We just heard about a false shepherd in Mark, Herod, 
He's had John the Baptist beheaded, and then we move to the feeding of the, the 5,000. And Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000. Why does he do that? Not to make us think about, wow, what a lovely bloke Jesus was. That was a really kind thing to do. He does that to demonstrate that he is the manifestation in history of God himself coming as the shepherd. And you'll notice if you read on in that story, the disciples set off in a boat and they get caught in a storm and they panic and we're told because they did not understand about the loaves and the fishes. They presumably saw the miracle. They'd have been touched by the miracle. They did not understand the miracle. They did not understand that he who could feed the 5,000, he who was God manifest in the flesh, can walk on water and stands above the storms and controls them. That's what Machen's talking about. When you deny miracles or when you, or when you say their significance lies in the impact, the psychological and emotional impact they have on the people who experience them or those of us who read about them, you are missing the point, not simply of the miracles, but of the incarnation and of Jesus Christ and thus of Christianity itself. And Machen in the book then goes on to see this problem as rooted in a failure to understand the seriousness of sin. By the way, we will get to the Bible in the end. I'm working towards it. Machen says this, The consciousness of sin was formerly the starting point of all preaching, but today it is gone. Characteristic of the modern age above all else is a supreme confidence in human goodness. The religious literature of the day is redolent of that confidence. Get beneath the rough exterior of men, we are told, and we shall discover enough self-sacrifice to found upon it the hope of society. The world's evil, it is said, can be overcome with the world's good. No help is needed from outside the world. It's a powerful statement. And it's hard, I think, not to move to our present day when you think about that. You can believe in the miracles of the Bible. You can believe that the Bible is true and still not get that point. Still not get that point. It's striking to me how much people these days talk about sin of the structures. Sin of the structures. That the problem is that the way society is organized is the problem. And this is occurring in conservative denominations. The real problem is the way society is structured. Machen, I think, would say, well, you know, underlying that is an incipient Pelagianism. That if you can just change the structures, if you can just get, we might say, beneath the rough exterior of the structures, to use Machen's language, people will be able to Flourish and do well, do the right things for themselves. Changing the structures, in other words, becomes the gospel. And that, my friends, is liberalism. The gospel is not about changing the structures. The gospel is about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to come back to this. Don't get me wrong. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ may well have implications for the structures, but that's not the gospel. The implications of the gospel are not the gospel. And it is fatal 
to lose that distinction. For Machen, of course, the key element to understanding the gospel, the key element to seeing the quality of somebody's doctrine of sin is the cross. Upon the Christian doctrine of the cross, he says, modern liberals are never weary of pouring out the vials of their hatred and their scorn. Against the doctrine of the cross, they use every weapon of caricature and vilification. Thus, they pour out their scorn upon a thing so holy and precious that in the presence of it, the Christian heart melts in gratitude too deep for words. It never seems to occur to modern liberals that in deriding the Christian doctrine of the cross, they trample upon human hearts. And then he says this, the difference with regard to the way of salvation concerns the basis of salvation in the redeeming work of Christ. According to Christian belief, Jesus is our Savior, not by virtue of what He said, not even by virtue of what He was, but by virtue of what He did. He is our Savior, not because He has inspired us to live the same kind of life that He lived, but because He took upon Himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bought it instead of us on the cross, and bore it instead of us on the cross. Such is the Christian conception of the cross of Christ. It's interesting. Have you ever thought, why do we have the Gospels and the Incarnation and not an Aesop's fable? Aesop's fables are great for teaching people how to live, aren't they? I have a, the, the English version. I have a thing called the Newgate Calendar at home, which was a book produced in the 19th century. It's a sort of quintessentially English book, I think. It's a book talking about the executions at Newgate Prison. And it's a, it's, it was meant, you were meant to read it to your children. And it was sort of started off, you know, Dick Turpin was kind of, he was a young lad, and he was rude to his mother, and then he became a highwayman, and finally they caught him and hanged him as he deserved. And, they, you know, it's just one story after another of children being rude to their parents, then ending up being hanged because they committed some terrible crime. The purpose of that book is a moral one. And there's a sense in which it doesn't matter whether Dick Turpin existed or not. They're stories that teach a moral point. For Machen, the historical reality of the Incarnation requires that we see the significance of the Incarnation as more than just a moral example. I used to laugh, you know, some years ago when I first arrived in America, a lot of people would wear those WWJD wristbands. Absolute disaster. I mean, just think about it. You're standing at the side of a lake and you see your friends in trouble in a boat in the middle of the lake in a storm and you're wondering what to do and you look at your wristband, WWJD. You think, what would Jesus do in this situation? I don't know what Jesus would do. He'd walk out and save them. You're going to drown. You're going to drown if you do that. The purpose of the Gospels is not to teach us what Jesus would do and follow it. The purpose of the Gospels is to present to us the uniqueness of the Incarnation and for us to reflect then upon the significance of that for us and for our status. The cross, our understanding of the cross, Machen is saying, is a function of how we understand sin. And the classic theory of penal substitution, as we now call it, rests upon the idea that sin is primarily against God. Psalm 51 Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, David is writing that psalm in a particularly distressing context. 
It's in the aftermath of his uh, adultery with Bathsheba, the assassination of uh, Bathsheba's husband, and the confrontation with Nathan. David has not just sinned against God. There's this this rhetorical aspect to what he's saying there. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's family. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband. But compared, compared to the sin against God, those things just fade from his mind at this point as he's writing this psalm. Against you, you only, have I sinned. That, I think, takes us to the heart of what Machen's trying to say about the cross and sin. If you have an understanding of the glorious nature of the Creator God, then you will understand that sin is always primarily and most heinously against Him. Again, jumping from Machen to the present day. And all of this connects to the Bible because this is the Bible's teaching. And by comparing how we think today with the Bible's teaching, we can see, I think, how far we have slipped from what the Bible teaches. Pastor friend this week emailed asking about why the language of brokenness has come to supplant the language of sin in the church today. Interesting question, isn't it? Because ultimately, people aren't, the problem with people is not they're broken. They defiantly sin against God, their creator. That's the real problem. Problem when you talk about brokenness is what? To be honest, it's liberalism. Brokenness is a psychological kind of category. And what you're saying is humanity's major problem is a psychological one, to which we therefore need a psychological therapeutic answer. That's the liberalism that Machen is reacting against in Christianity and liberalism. Yes, people are broken, but that's not their big problem. They're broken because they're rebels against God. Against God, God only have they sinned. And I have to say the obsession in modern Western society with victimhood, which is, frankly, it's the currency, isn't it? It's the currency of cultural exchange and political exchange is victimhood. I'm a bigger victim than you are, speaks precisely to this. If your primary problem is you're a victim, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. It may be a social problem, and it may be a difficulty that needs to be addressed, but that's not your primary problem, and it's not Christianity. And this brings me to the next point that lies, uh, underlies Machen's work here, and that is he makes a deep contrast between what he calls feeling versus history, psychology versus doctrine. And here we're starting, we're definitely now starting to move towards the place of the Bible, why the Bible is so important for Machen. Now, Machen doesn't deny Christian experience. He doesn't deny Christian experience. What he denies is that Christian experience is the gospel. For Machen, Christian experience flows out of the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. He says this, Christian experience, we have just said, is useful as confirming the gospel message. But because it is necessary, many men have jumped to the conclusion that it is all that is necessary. Having a present experience of Christ in the heart, may we not, it is said, hold that experience no matter what history may tell us as the events of the first Easter morning. 
The trouble is that the experience thus maintained is not Christian experience. Religious experience it may be, but Christian experience it certainly is not. For Christian experience depends absolutely upon an event. I used to have a, well, my, one of my secretaries when I was dean at Western. I don't have any staff now like my brother here, you know, cast of thousands, you know, pastor of this and head of that at the church. The secretary I had, she came from a very conservative Christian background. And I once asked her what her favorite hymn was. And she said, I can't remember the, the, the line, but she said, it's the hymn that, that ends with that, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. It's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? Except it's German liberalism. It's 19th century German liberalism. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. You don't know that Jesus lives because he lives within your heart. You know that Jesus lives because God has declared in the Bible that Jesus is the Messiah and has risen from the dead. And I used to whine. I said, so you are a liberal then? Because she used to think, because I, 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 I drank and things like that, she thought I was a terrible liberal. But I used to wind her up and say, so you're the real liberal. You know, ask me how I know he lives. That's German liberalism. You don't know Jesus lives because he lives within your heart. That's a psychological state. How many other psychological states do you have that are no guarantee of reality? It's a psychological state. Christianity, Machen says, is based upon an account of something that happened. And the Christian worker is primarily a witness. A witness to something that has happened. And that leads Machen then to say this. The world was to be redeemed through the proclamation of an event. And with the event went the meaning of the event, and the setting forth of the event with the meaning of the oh sorry, and the setting forth of the event with the meaning of the event was doctrine. These two elements are always combined in the Christian message. The narration of the facts is history. The narration of the facts with the meaning of the facts is doctrine. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. That is history. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is doctrine. Such, says Machen, was the Christianity of the primitive church. And this then is why the Bible is important to Machen. Because the Bible is the uniquely inspired account of God's dealings with his people, the content of which constitutes the content of the gospel. If Christianity is constituted by the feelings we have in response to what the Bible says, then there may be other and better books out there for promoting and provoking those feelings. The Bible is relativized if you psychologize Christianity into a religious experience. That, of course, is essentially what's done today. And we say, when we say to somebody, well, it's true for you, but it isn't true for me. We might translate that as, it works for you, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I read the Bible and it just left me cold. It doesn't work for me. You know, I find you know, the lyrics of Kurt Cobain so much more inspiring and moving than the Bible. So that's what works for me. That's what's true for me. Nature would say no. Because the lyrics of Kurt Cobain, they're not divinely inspired. 
That's not a historical account of God's dealings with his people combined with an explanation of the significance of those dealings with his people that constitutes the gospel. The truth and importance of the Bible lie in its objective content, not in its emotional or psychological impact. And I want to suggest here, notice that means that one can still believe the Bible is true and still not get the point. Joel Osteen. I'm sure Joel Osteen believes the Bible is true. I'm sure he believes that Jesus rose on the third day and the tomb was empty. But its significance for him is the psychological impact, the well-being that that promotes. I was looking up on the, uh, the you know, I just typed Bible diet into my search engine, knowing that it would pull up some real doozies, as you would say in America, for me. Eden's health plan was the one that I decided to, to tell you about today. And here is the, the book's own blurb. And I've no doubt that the author of this book thinks they're taking the Bible very seriously indeed. Discover, we're told, how you can take charge of your own health, keeping yourself young, energetic, attractive, and free of degenerative diseases. Discover the biblical injunctions on diet and health and the amazing correlations between them and the most recent scientific research. God has a wonderful health plan. That was in bold print. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Exodus 15, 26. Three keys to health are, one, detoxifying your body and soul and spirit. Two, rebuilding your immune system. Three, nourishing your body's cells. We will show you multiple ways of accomplishing each of these three objectives. Mark and Patty researched 100 books on healthcare before writing Go Natural. And the topics they cover show the breadth of the approach they take in maintaining excellent health. Subjects explored include the Genesis diet, understanding how our bodies fight disease, living land, living food, living water, pure air, non-toxic household chemicals, colon cleansing. I don't remember. Maybe that's somewhere in Leviticus. I I, I missed that. Uh, Vitamins, enzymes, antioxidants, herbs, exercise, faith, hope, love, spirit-anointed healing prayer, fasting, and tissue cleansing. What makes the Eden Health Plan go natural message so unique and effective? We understand God designed our bodies to heal themselves. We integrate biblical commands with scientific research. We use a biblical paradigm for discovering truth. We explore many approaches for restoring health. We approach healing on three levels, spirit, soul, and body. Total gibberish. Absolute total gibberish. The Bible is not a health plan. The Bible is the declaration of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ not to overcome our obesity, not to conquer type 2 diabetes, but to conquer death itself, the penalty of sin. With the best will in the world, you could follow this diet and you are not going to remain young and attractive, even if you're attractive, you know, not all of us are attractive anyway. A couple of years ago, Philadelphia was voted the the ugliest city in the United States. Uh, On average, people in Philadelphia are uglier than anywhere else. People were really outraged by this. I thought it was fantastic because, you know, 
average-looking guys, we can walk around the streets feeling like George Clooney uh, in Philadelphia. <laughs> anyway, even if you're attractive, you're not going to stay attractive forever. This is a con trick. I have no doubt these people, they're taking the Bible very seriously. So seriously, they're building their diets and their health plans around it. But they're missing the point. They're missing what the Bible is. The Bible isn't just true. I've got a lot of books on my shelves at home that are true. Some of them may even be inerrant. Handbook for a computer, handbook for a car engine. Could well be inerrant, contain no errors. But none of them do what the Bible does, and that is declare to me what God has done in Christ to deal with my most fundamental problem. Machen also goes on and talks about Jesus, those who oppose Jesus to the Bible. We have versions of that, and people generally don't put it in quite those blunt terms. Well, you have the Bible and I have Jesus. They probably put it in more subtle terms. The Bible is not a set of doctrines, it's a way of life. It's the more subtle way of putting it, to which the answer is no, the Bible is a set of doctrines. Or certainly you can synthesize doctrines out of the Bible, teaching correct descriptions of God and his actions that have implications for a way of life. But Christianity is fundamentally a set of doctrines. That's what it is. The gospel, therefore, is an announcement. It's the declaration of what God has done in history and what God will do to bring history to its close. It's an announcement that demands a response, but the response is not the gospel. That's the important distinction. And if I were to look at uh, some of the debates going on in conservative Presbyterianism today, I would say that's where the confusion's coming. People are confusing response with the gospel itself. Racial re reconciliation. Now, what kind of bigoted lunatic is not in favor of racial reconciliation? It's like, you know, who's in favor of poverty? Nobody's in favor of poverty. These things are wickednesses. They're evils on the face of the earth. Racial prejudice, poverty, these are not how God designed the world to be. But the solution to those problems is the declaration of the gospel, ultimately. Racial reconciliation is not the gospel. It is something that flows out of the gospel. As the hearts and minds of men and women are transformed, as they realize that their primary identity is not that they are victims, but that they have sinned against the Lord their God and therefore need to be reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as God has loved them even in their sins, so they are to love their neighbors, regardless of whether they like them as individuals or not. Confusing the gospel with the response to the gospel is not simply something that the political left do. If you think the gospel is a particular, you know, the American way of life, you're committing exactly the same, exactly the same mistake. The gospel is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has implications for everyday life, but those implications are not the gospel. Matron for today, then, I just want to end with three basic questions and a statement. First of all, as we reflect 
upon what Machen is critiquing in the early 20th century, I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have any conception of the greatness of God? Do we have any conception of the greatness of God? And closely allied to that is, do we have any conception of the enormity of sin? And when I say the enormity of sin, I don't mean the sin of other people out there. It's relatively easy to have a concept of the enormity of their sin, particularly when it impacts us. Do we have any conception of the enormity of our own sin against the glorious God? That would be a transformative concept, wouldn't it? When we grasp that, it's going to change everything. And connected to that then, do we realize that the essence of Christianity is not the experiences we have connected to the proclamation of Jesus Christ, not even the responses we may have connected to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the proclamation itself. And then to end with Machen's point on the Bible. And that points us back to the Bible. Why is the Bible central to us? Because our sinful instincts are always to blunt our understanding of the glory of God and the heinousness of our sin. And I would go on and say it's why the church and the proclamation of God's word is important as well. Westminster Shorter Catechism, talking about the means of grace, says, one of the means of grace, the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God. Why especially the preaching? Because when you read the Bible and when I read the Bible, we read it with filters. We read it instinctively with filters. When you sit in church and the minister proclaims the gospel, it confronts you in a way that your own Bible reading does not confronts you in a way that your own Bible reading does not do so. It's important. The Bible is important as the foundation of Christian preaching, and Christian preaching is vital as one of the foundations of the Christian life because it is confrontational. It shatters your filters, and it makes you face God as He really is and you as you really are before Him. So do you have a conception of the greatness of God? Do you have a conception of the enormity of sin? And do you realize that the essence of the gospel is not your experience of the gospel or your response to the gospel? It is the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Thank you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.